You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining me for tonight's teaching. I'm glad you're here. Uh, This is sort of a continuation of something that I talked about last summer. I did two teachings on justice and have received so much feedback about those teachings. And I have continued to grow in my own learning on this topic. And um, so I wanted to continue that conversation. So this is going to be part one of a three-part teaching series on justice. So tonight we're going to lay some groundwork on how justice is rooted and grounded in God's character, looking at a lot of scriptures related to that. And then in parts two and three of the series, we'll really get into a lot of the nuts and bolts of how to quote unquote do justice. And that is probably one of the most common questions that Monique and I receive at the ministry is, well, how do I do justice? And so we want to begin to lend some clarity on that question. And I can assure you that this all represents my own research. (laughs) I didn't purchase this uh, live stream from uh, the docent group or plagiarize it from anyone. I actually spent time researching these issues on my own. (laughs) What a concept. Uh, Yeah, I'll hopefully maybe talk about more of that tomorrow at the family meeting over at the Center for Biblical Unity about what has been coming out this week um, and how widespread the problem of sermon plagiarism might possibly be, how deep that hole goes. But I can assure you that everything I'm going to present tonight is through my own journey, research uh, and biblical study that I've done. And I really do hope that you will find these teachings helpful in your own journey to better understand the biblical concept of justice. Now you'll share them with your friends, your pastor, and even your children, um, you know, share a podcast with your teenager, play a podcast in the car as you're driving. So let's get into it here. You know, whenever the topic of justice comes up, I notice that Christians often fall into one of two reactions. Some people either immediately associate the topic of justice with liberal politics and Marxism. And often Christians in this camp will usually respond with something like, uh, we should just focus on preaching the gospel because justice is part of cultural Marxism. And I, I completely understand and this sentiment and when people bring this up, But I'd also like to make an observation that many Christians who kind of trumpet this phraseology that we should just focus on preaching the gospel are also often open to engaging in public advocacy on such issues as fighting against abortion or protecting religious freedom or outlawing sex trafficking. And That tells me that they don't actually believe that advocating for public policies that align with biblical justice standards is incompatible with preaching the gospel. Um, They do believe that Christians should have a voice in moral reform in society. And in fact, they believe that both can be done. People can advocate for biblical justice and preach the gospel. Both, Both things can happen. So then the question becomes for for members of this group or what I'm going to call like the preach the just preach the gospel group. The real question for them that I would have is what justice issues are compatible with the historic Christian faith? Because I think that is actually the heart behind what they're saying. They, They associate the cultural conversation around justice as being linked to liberal policies and Marxism. And so they respond in kind of this knee-jerk way of saying, well, let's just preach the gospel. But then they want to advocate for other social programs that they see that are compatible with historic Christianity. So I think a better response is, how do I think about justice and what justice issues would actually be compatible with the Christian faith? 
I think that's a very thoughtful question and a key question that I hope to address in this teaching series. Now, the other side of the coin, the second response that I hear a lot of times is people who just sort of quote Micah 6, 8, very common justice verse. And they'll say, you know, what we need to do is act justly or do justice. And Micah 6, 8 is usually followed up by a string of other verses, usually also from the prophetic books that use the word justice to describe um, God's anger against his people because of their lack of concern about justice or ways that they have acted unjustly. And again, I have sympathy for anyone who wants to advocate for justice. I'm sympathetic to this view. Um, quite likely, they are, they are wanting to, to advocate for justice because they have a heart that, that wants to reflect the heart of God. And um, I, I, I get that. I, I'm sympathetic to that. However, I've noticed that when people in this camp, you know, kind of the, let's just quote Micah 6, 8 and, and other prophetic passages about justice. These types of people very seldom bring forward a clear definition of justice or what specific standards ought to be used to determine what is just or unjust. And so what often ends up happening in these public meetings or, or you know, in church services and that kind of a thing, there'll be a conversation about justice, Micah 6, 8, and a number of prophetic verses will be put forward. And then there's a, a call for congregants to sign up for a church project, to beautify a local city park or engage in some kind of social advocacy that has marginal biblical support. And if I'm honest, this just makes me so sad because it preys on people's good desires to follow Jesus, to obey Jesus, to be like Jesus. But then it doesn't give them a biblically solid path for doing so. And so I am trying to kind of bring clarity to both of these very well-meaning sides that I think um, each of them falls into a hole. And, and they, I'm hoping in this teaching series to help people in both camps get more clarity on what biblical justice is and how we can walk in it. Now, when it comes to the world, I would totally expect confusion. Um, I would even go so far to say that I would expect social advocacy that, that is not tethered to scripture in any way, shape or form. Well, that's because every culture, and this is a very important point, every culture defines what is right and what is just in its own way. Um, every culture has sensibilities about what they consider to be right. I call this justice by cultural consensus. One culture, they may have a norm that says one thing is right or just in one society, but then it's regarded as wrong or unjust in another society. And I'm just going to flash a, a few examples here on the screen. In, for example, in ancient Rome, it was thought that it was just to throw Christians to lions because they were considered atheists. They didn't believe in the Roman gods. There was, they believed in no, no gods, no Roman gods. So they were called atheists. So in ancient Rome, it was seen as just or right or good to throw Christians to lions. Hitler thought it was good. It was just to kill Jews in order to correct past wrongs. The 9-11 hijackers thought it was right and good to crash planes into American buildings. The caste system in India puts forward an idea that it's just to treat untouchables differently than others. And untouchables is a, is a caste. It's a, it's a group of people that are, they're born into that caste. Uh, currently, we see big tech companies think it's just or right 
or good to delete or shadow ban certain people's social media accounts, including me and Monique's media accounts, social media accounts, because they don't like what is being said. And that is looked upon as being a good. A year ago, looting was called justice. We saw many images like this on our local news of, of neighborhoods destroyed by looting. And the idea of justice that was put forward then by many in the mainstream media was that that justice means you can take other people's stuff. You can break into their shops and steal their inventory. So to say the least, our culture is very confused about justice. But so are many Christians. So what I'm hoping to, to do in this teaching series is to lend some, some biblical clarity about how we ought to determine um, how to act in accordance with God's justice standards. So I'm going to ask Bob real quick here. Are there any questions on social media that I should pay attention to? Okay. All right. I'm going to keep going then. All right. So let's start by reviewing two visions of justice that are competing right now in our public square. And in some cases, in our local churches, we, what we need to understand is that not all justice is biblical justice. Okay, so just because somebody is using the word justice doesn't mean they're talking about the biblical definition. My hope here is that by explaining these two competing visions of justice, you'll be able to recognize them when they come up in a conversation or when they come up in your pastor's sermon. So let's begin with a very brief discussion of what I'm going to call social justice. Now, it's very important to understand something. This is our culture's vision of justice. And I'm going to get to this definition in just a moment. But what I wanted to tell you really quickly is that this term social justice can be a little confusing. So I want to give you a pro tip here. A um, hundred years ago, the term social justice was a term that was actually part of classical, particularly Roman Catholic social theology. And it referred to something that we call the common good. And it operated according to Judeo-Christian principles in the background. So it was assuming certain things about the Christian worldview, and then it was trying to figure out how to work those principles out in the public square. That's what was meant in older theological books by social justice. So if you read a book that is older, and by older, I mean probably 50 years old or more, I want you to be aware that if you encounter this word social justice, it's not what our, our culture is saying is social justice. It's a very particular term that came out of Roman Catholic theology, public theology. Okay, so it's not what it means now. So sometimes people are a little confused by that because it does have a Christian origin originally. Now, I've heard a shorthand way of defining social justice is good things that no one needs to argue for and no one be dare against. I think that's actually a pretty clever definition because functionally that's how it operates right now a lot of times in public conversations. And it illustrates part of the reason that the cultural conversation right now is so emotionally loaded. I mean, who wants to say they're against justice? We all want to be good people. So of course I'm for justice, right? But what we have to understand is that in recent years, the term social justice has morphed into a very specific definition. And this definition is how our culture is using the term social justice now. So it's going to be very important to be aware of that. All right, now let's look at some of the major points of social justice. It refers to justice being distributed across society and enforced by the state. We might even say it's justice redistributed. It's the state coming in and deciding what is just and unjust and then distributing that according 
to its sensibilities. Social justice seeks to redistribute power and resources. So it's not just a redistribution of money. It is a redistribution of power. So this is why we hear things like smash the patriarchy and, and calling capitalism uh, evil. It's because there's a desire to redistribute power and resources. Social justice says that the purpose of the social order is to seek and to create a level playing field. Now, again, that would have to be defined where everyone has the same chance to have the same outcome. This is what our culture calls equity. Okay. That is equity. So we're going to make a level playing field so that everybody has equal outcomes, whether that's equal outcomes in power or in resources. Social justice seeks to narrow income inequality through wealth redistribution. Social justice favors or punishes specific groups based on value judgments regarding historical events or current conditions. So this is why, for example, we're seeing a lot of conversation um, about punishing white people or, or taking away um, power structures that in the past were uh, dominated by white people and in favoring um, other groups based on their skin color. So all of that, that whole kind of, all of those points, those five points, all factor into what our culture is now calling social justice. So when you hear the phrase social justice, you need to understand that these are the ideas that are generally in play. Now, let's look for a minute at a competing vision for justice. We're going to call this biblical justice. And the most foundational thing that we need to understand about the biblical vision of justice is that it flows out of God's character. Justice cannot be separated from God's holiness or his love or his omnipotence, that he is all powerful or any other of his attributes. God is just. So if we want to know where justice comes from, what we need to know is that God's character is the ground and standard for justice. Psalm 89, uh, starting at verses uh, 13 and 14, says this. And it's describing God. Your arm is endowed with power. Your hand is strong. Your right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice, notice this wording here. This would be a great verse to highlight, are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. And I'm going to ask Bob to leave this up on the screen here for a minute because I want you to notice some things about this verse. First of all, the Hebrew words for justice and righteousness are very closely connected. And we see them situated close to each other many times in the Old Testament. And if we as God's people are going to reflect the character of our Savior and our Creator, we will need to reflect deeply on how we will display God's righteousness and justice to others because we want to reflect His character. We want to be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And this project involves reflecting on what scripture has to say about what justice is. So another thing I want you to reflect on in these verses is the issue of power. We notice here that God is endowed with power. This is so important because right now there's a whole cultural conversation happening that power is wicked and it's evil and we want to smash the powers. But what we have to understand is that in God's economy, all power flows from him. One more observation here is that justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne. But notice how love and faithfulness are part of that too. So we can't divide out God's love from his justice. We can't divide out his righteousness from his justice. 
or his holiness or his omnipotence. All of these characteristics of God go together. So now we're going to dig a little bit deeper into a definition of God's justice. We've established kind of the foundation. It comes from his character. Now we're going to look at a brief summary of how we're going to define God's justice. God's justice is that of rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his due in accord with the righteous standard of God's moral law. Now that I'm getting this definition from Dr. Cal Beisner, who is a wonderful um, philosopher, historian, theologian. He's written extensively on biblical justice. And so that is where I'm getting this definition. It's the best definition that I've come across. And so I want to dig into these different four different aspects of justice. We commonly refer to justice in this colloquial way in culture as equal treatment under the law. That is kind of something that flows out of a biblical understanding of justice. So this is the view from 30,000 feet when it comes to justice. Now we're going to dig in and dissect this definition piece by piece. So the cornerstone of God's justice is that of impartiality. There it is right there on the left impartiality. Deuteronomy, or let me read this. God's justice requires an equal application of all relevant rules to all people in all relevant situations. And again, I've adapted this slide from Dr. Cal Beisner's book on biblical justice versus social justice. So if you want to dig in deeper, that would be a great resource for you. Okay, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 10 and look at some biblical passages that relate to um, the impartiality of justice. This starts in verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. God himself is impartial. He accepts no bribes. He shows no favoritism. He applies the rules the same to everyone. And he wants his people to reflect his character of impartiality. So since God doesn't play favorites, we should not play favorites when it comes to justice, especially public justice um, in a court of law. Now, I do play favorites when it comes to some of my relationships, I favor my husband over all other men. I favor my children and those relations relationships over other relationships. So not all favoritism is wicked, but when it comes to adjudicating things, when it comes to f- fact finding and truth finding, that is where impartiality is absolutely vital. So to show partiality in a matter of justice is actually to pervert justice. Leviticus 19 says it this way. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Now I want you to notice we live in a culture right now that wants to show partiality certain partiality to the poor and punish the powerful, punish the wealthy. But that would be a violation of God's justice standard. It would be a perversion of justice to judge our neighbor fairly is to apply the same principles to all. And that is what makes, for example, bribery so wicked because when a rich person bribes a judge in order to make a, a verdict go a certain way, that is a perversion of justice. Why? Because it is to be unlike God. It is to be in opposition to God who is impartial. So that's why 
if the if the wealthy and the powerful are not prosecuted according to the same laws as the poor and the middle class, that's a perversion of justice. The president should be under the same laws as the the regular people. Uh, this idea is restated in Deuteronomy 16, starting at verse 18. God instructs Moses to appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Well, what does fairly mean in God's justice system? It means this. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you. So when the people wandered from God's justice standards, what we see lived out in the prophets, what God was condemning was not that they were wealthy. It's that they were using their wealth to pervert justice to bribe judges, to oppress the widow and the orphan, um, to develop kind of a partial system that favored the rich. That is why God was so upset. And what did he do? He took them away from the land. The very thing he warned them would happen if they didn't live impartially. Deuteronomy chapter one echoes this principle of impartiality when it comes to our judgments. Let's start with verse 16. And I charged your judges at the time, hear the disputes between your people and judge fairly. Whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. And notice God's partiality applies to everybody, whether they are a citizen or foreign born, same rules apply. Do not show partiality in judging here, both the small and the great alike. Do not be afraid of anyone for judgment belongs to God. Bring me a ca any case too hard for you and I will hear it. Okay. So I want, I want you to understand is that impartiality is kind of the cornerstone, a critical cornerstone of God's justice standard. And again, why? Because God is impartial. He wants his people to be impartial. The same rules apply to everyone. We see God's impartiality most vividly displayed in our own salvation. God extends the offer of salvation even to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter entered the house of Cornelius, who's a Gentile, he kind of has this aha moment. He says this starting at verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. When we reflect on the impartiality of God, it ought to inspire us to go out to all the nations and preach the gospel. It ought to motivate us to bring the good news of salvation to the rich and the poor alike, because all have the same problem and all need the same cure for sin. And that is Jesus. So when I reflect on the impartiality of God, I also imagine the great white throne judgment. Each and every one of us will stand before the father one day and we will all be judged according to the same standard. What did we do with his son, Jesus? Who have we trusted in for our salvation from the father's coming wrath on that day? God will be utterly impartial to the, to the rich and the poor alike. God will not play favorites. And just like the pattern of the Old Testament, God is impartial. God wants his new covenant people to also act impartially. 
James chapter two gives us an extended discourse about this. And what I want you to understand is that this audience of Jewish Christians has in the background of their understanding all of the Old Testament verses that we just finished reading from the Mosaic law. Okay. So all of that understanding is in their, in their minds. And James comes to them and says that believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. And then he gives an illustration. Suppose a man comes into your meeting, into your church meeting, and he's wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man, you stand over here. You sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So even in our meeting houses, God wants his people that when they come into the church, there's no special seat for the rich and there's no, no place to go stand if you're poor. We all come in there because the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And God's impartiality extends to the rich and the poor, the Jew and the Gentile alike. Let me scroll down here and read some more of this passage from James 2. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. I think this is a very important point. Because in, in God's economy, when you come into the church, a poor person, if they are righteous and, and recognized by the, by the church as being a holy leader, they can become an elder. An elder could be a slave. It could be a rich person. It could be a poor person. It could be a centurion. The important thing was, is what kind of Christ follower are you? Are you mature in the Lord? So when people came into the meeting house, if all they ever did was promote the rich to being elders in the church, that would be a violation of God's standard of impartiality. Verse eight, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as law breakers. And so, all right, I'm going to keep reading here. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you should not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are being judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Merciful, mercy triumphs over judgment. So when it comes to the New Testament, what we need to know, and we need to know it like in the deepest part of us, that God's law is not some abstract thing that has no connection to Christians today. We are called to love our neighbor. We're called to be impartial. And without God's law, we cannot even begin to understand how God wants justice to be lived out among his people. Justice must look like something. It is specific. It reacts specifically to situations because it is informed ahead of time by scripture. Okay, now let's look at a second feature of God's justice. And we're going to go back to this slide here that has these little four boxes. And with each of the kind of breaking down um, the, the aspects, the definition of justice. So first we talked about impartiality. Second, we're, now we're going to talk about rendering to each his due. And that there is, what this means is that there is something about the person being judged and it's according to the merits or what has been earned. And so there's going, God will give um, a punishment based on what that person has earned. And this principle kind of follows directly from the first. So because God is impartial, he will issue the punishment that's due or what the person deserves. 
And he will do that because he does not play favorites. So let's notice how God is described here in Psalm 62. He says, one thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God. Now notice that word power again and how closely power is connected with justice and love. And with you, Lord, is unfailing love and you reward everyone according to what they have done. Now, again, I know it's very in vogue right now to say that all power structures are wicked and we need to smash the patriarchy. But when we understand the world, according to God's justice standards, we understand that all power begins with God. Power is not inherently wicked. Human sinfulness is what makes it wicked. But God's judgments are perfect because they are rooted and grounded in his character. I'm going to go back to that slide for a minute and scroll down. I think Proverbs is down there. Yep. Proverbs 24 echoes this. If you say what well, we knew nothing about this, does he not, does he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? He will, he not repay according everyone according to what they have done. See, God weighs the heart. He sees the human heart and in his justice standards, it requires him to repay everyone according to what they have done. Now you might be thinking in your mind, wait a minute, that's not how our salvation works, but that is how God's justice standard works. And that's why we needed Christ's salvation in our place. But I want you to notice here how God distributes justice according to what people have earned. God isn't capricious. He doesn't play favorites. He gives punishments that are fair and that are earned because he has weighed the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Now, when we turn to the New Testament, because God is the same yesterday, today and forever, we ought to expect it's the same God, same standard. We read in Romans chapter two. You therefore have no excuse. He's talking to Jews. You have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, namely the Gentiles that God, that G, uh, the, I'm sorry, that Paul had just finished describing in chapter one of Romans for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. What Paul's saying here is you Jews, you're not uh, scot-free, you know, yeah, the Gentiles act in these perverse ways, but so do you, is what he's saying. We know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, Gentiles, and yet do the same things, do you think you, Jew, Mr. Jew, Mrs. Jew, will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Now, this, this is exactly the same principle that we see in the Old Testament, that God will give a judgment according to what we deserve. It's a very hard teaching for us. Very hard because we want to think of God as love and love only. But again, what we, we must reflect on and, and meditate on is that you can't divide out the character of God. His attributes stick together. And so we understand his justice, his holiness, his love, his omnipotence or his way of being all powerful this is all part of his character. Another way of describing this idea of God um, giving justice that's, that's due someone um, is that people reap what they sow. Sometimes we say that. And that's a biblical idea. The Bible recognizes that human deeds carry consequences. To use the words of Paul in Galatians chapter 6, we might say it this way. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. God's justice 
requires a consequence. The concepts of guilt and proportionality and retribution undergird both the Old and New Testaments. And because God is inherently just and God's judgments are never capricious, we see the idea of retributive justice, retributive justice on sin, both within human history as God judges the nations according to their sins and what they deserve, but also at the end of time, at the great white throne judgment, the entire Bible ends with this statement of impending retributive justice in Revelation chapter 22. It says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give each person according to what they have done. So this is this, the second aspect of justice. So let's go back to our graphic here, our four kind of aspects of, of justice. So the first aspect of God's justice is impartiality, rendering to each is due, this idea of sowing and reaping. Now we're going to talk about proportionality. This is the symmetry between initial acts and rewards or punishments, that there's a differentiation between accidental negligent and intentional harm and that when judgments are given these it is done proportionally not all harm is the same god allows for nuance if you will so when we summarize the first two aspects of god's justice this way it means acquitting or punishing every person based on the merits of the case regardless of social status or race status or anything else. And anyone who, who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty. When we look at this third aspect of God's justice standards, the symmetry between these initial acts and punishments and rewards, but also differentiating between accidental negligent and intentional harm. So let's get into that a little bit more um, in this principle and just give a few very brief illustrations Exodus chapter 21 says this, if there's a serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, I think this is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. The point here that God is making is not that we should be yanking people's eyes out at every turn. The point here is that God doesn't want human courts to overpunish or underpunish. This is the principle of proportionality. If an eye is injured, human courts don't have the authority to take someone's life. That would be disproportional. That would be inappropriate. That would be a perversion of justice. In modern day terms, we say the punishment should fit the crime. We know intuitively that something unjust has happened when somebody is murdered and they, they get no punishment. What just happened? The punishment isn't proportional. Okay. The law, God's law is, was not meant to be seen as an act of vengeance. This eye for eye, tooth for tooth principle. It's not an act of vengeance. It was rather to check vengeance. It was to reduce vengeance it was to restrain people. It was to restrain evil from getting out of control, from people taking matters into their own hand in their anger and giving too severe of a punishment. That is the, the, the idea behind this life for life principle. Here's another example later in Exodus 21. An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go to compensate for the eye. And an owner who knocks out the tooth of a male or female slave must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. Now, the point here is not to go and knock out the tooth of the slave owner. The point is restitution or repayment, which is the, the tooth for tooth, life for life principle. How do we know what the proper level of repayment is? Again, God gives us so many principles. I call these case laws and, and we'll get more into this next time in some of these details. 
But in this case, the slave is injured. He probably can't work anymore. So kind of the workers comp program is that the slave receives an automatic debt forgiveness, whatever he was an indentured servant to do hit that debt is immediately canceled. He gets his freedom and he doesn't have to repay that his, the, the person that he's indentured to his the slave owner. So the idea here is that God is setting up is that this is the proportional payment for an injury. This is what we do. So we might think about this in our own day of like, okay, um, when someone loses their, their job because of maybe employer negligence or something, you know, there's some things to reflect on there as we are in our cultural context. God's law also distinguishes between acts that were done with intent and those that are done on accident and have unintended consequences. And the punishments are different. The proportionality is different. Let's look at a couple of examples. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 19. Now, this is the law pertaining to one who flees in order to live. If he has, now notice the distinction here, accidentally killed another without hating him at the time of the accident. So scripture is differentiating between a situation where there was intentionality and forethought, what we call first degree murder versus a situation of an accidental death, something we call manslaughter. We have different um, punishments assigned to both of those things. We are following in the biblical principle that way. Suppose he goes with someone else to the forest to cut wood and he raises his ax to cut the tree. And the ax head flies loose from the handle. This is a case law saying, for example, strikes his fellow worker so hard that he dies the person responsible may then flee to one of these cities to save himself. Otherwise, the blood avenger, in other words, someone in the family who's going to come for him, will chase after the killer in the heat of his anger and eventually overtake him and kill him. Though this is not a capital case since he did not hate him at the time of the accident. So notice God's grace to everybody involved here. There's grace for the person who did the accidental killing he has a place to run. And then if we were to continue to read this, we would see that how his, tr- his case would get heard and what that process would be. But then there's also grace for the, the, the angry family member that he doesn't have hatred in his heart. And then he runs after the person who's killed his family member. And then he commits a capital crime and has to pay for his life with his life. So there's grace for everybody involved. And that is the beauty of God's justice system. He, when he tells us how to act, there is something in that for us to reflect on about his character as being just. Now I'll freely admit, there's a lot of things in scripture. I don't understand. There, there's a lot of things that I'm like, I don't know exactly what this shows me about the character of God but I can reflect on it. I can look at it. And I know that going into it, there is some principle here that God wants me to know and understand about his character. So in this discussion here that we just looked at is about what we call manslaughter or accidental death. And it's trying to prevent a family member from taking justice into their own hands. So yes, God's standard of punishment for intentional murder with hatred in your heart, with malice and forethought, is life for life. But that is not God's standard when it comes to the accidental taking of a life. And this is where proportionality is very important. What God is trying to prevent here in establishing these cities of refuge is he's trying to prevent family vengeance or over punishment, taking a life when God's justice standards say that is not the appropriate punishment. The punishment must fit the crime. Now, um, I do want to make a quick point about this life for life principle when we get to the New Testament, because Jesus actually quotes this same verse from Leviticus 24 in Matthew chapter five. He says this starting in verse 38. You have heard it said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. 
But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them to the, turn to the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now you may wonder, why would someone sue for a tunic or a robe? But if we were to go back and we read in Exodus chapter 22, we would see that robes were often used as sort of a down payment for a loan. And so that's, that's what is in the background here. And what is meant by going an extra mile? Well, under Roman law, soldiers could force people to carry heavy loads for them for a mile. So what Jesus is saying, hey, go two miles for them. Uh, the Jewish people despised this practice. I'm sure this was not a popular suggestion that Jesus was making. Um, but he's basically saying, rather than refusing or complaining, be willing to take their backpack an extra mile. I always imagine that maybe Jesus was thinking, that's just more time that you have to share the gospel with that person. Um, now we need to, to note here that Jesus is not nullifying the life for life principle from Exodus. He's not removing capital punishment or human law courts or setting up an entirely different justice standard as some progressive Christians um, are fond of saying. Rather, what Jesus is trying to get his followers to do is to stop calling insults such as a slap on the cheek or a lawsuit or going the extra mile or when someone asks for money as being on the same level as bodily injury or theft or fraud, which are offenses that are actually specified with the appropriate or proportional punishments in God's law. Retaliation for petty things is so tempting, isn't it? I mean, we've all been there. A car cuts us off on the freeway. We want to race ahead and just cut them off. A person insults us and we are tempted to insult them back. Um, Our boss seems overly demanding and, and, and we're tempted to gossip about our boss. A person borrows money for us from us and never repays. And we're tempted to go back and demand a hefty repayment. But what Jesus is calling his followers to is a different way of living. So if we continue with Matthew five here, go back to that for a minute. I'm going to scroll down here. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, and, and that's not something that's in God's law, by the way, that's, that's legalism. That's adding to God's law. That was a, that was something the Pharisees would say, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes the sin, the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who loved you, what reward will you get? If you greet only those who, who only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Even pagans do that. Okay, so Jesus wants us to have a mindset of not taking people to court over petty, minor things. Yes, there's a time to go to court. Paul appealed to Caesar. When someone harms a child, Jesus said it would be better off if they were dead. God calls the government his deacon of justice in Romans 13. Punishing the guilty is requirement of God's justice standard. But at the same time, most of the offenses we encounter in our day-to-day are petty things. And Jesus is telling us not to escalate petty things to legal actions. Instead, we, we love, we pray blessings over those people. And when we encounter actual crimes, as specified in God's law, there should be a provision to deal with that accordingly. Okay, we're going to look at now the fourth aspect of God's justice. So we're going to pop this graphic back up there one more time. This is kind of our anchoring graphic tonight. And that is that God's justice says that we ought to conform to the standards in God's laws. And this fourth component of God's justice will be the main focus of parts two and three of this teaching series. And that's where I'll unfold it in much more detail. So I'm only going to explain the big picture here. But, you know, what I've noticed is that many Christians don't have an understanding of the role of God's law in their lives. 
or they have this very truncated way of looking at the scriptures and they don't understand um, really how God's law ought to be functioning in our lives as Christ followers. Now, I want to be clear, like the law cannot save us. The gospel is God's rescue program for us. It, it proclaims to us how we as sinful humans can be restored into a right relationship with the father. The, the law can never do that. But if we look at the two greatest commandments to love God and love our neighbor, we immediately see the role of God's law in our lives. Just notice this short exchange with Jesus and some of the Jewish leaders from Matthew chapter 22. It says one of them, an expert in the law tested Jesus with this question. He's like, it's a trap question, basically teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord, your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, I want you to notice something. These are commandments. These are law. Our love for others is part of God's law. Loving God and loving your neighbor is not the gospel. The gospel is God's rescue program for us. It's heaven coming down to us. Okay, the law is how I love God in return and how I love my neighbor. All of the commands in scripture tell us how to love God and love our neighbor. This is what the law does. It informs our soul. It shapes how we live. It tells us how to live righteously. We don't simply believe in the gospel and then live however we want. Yes, we are saved by grace. That's the gospel. That's God's rescue plan for us. But then our souls must be taught how to obey all of Jesus's commands. Most of which are simply restating many of the laws and principles from the Old Testament. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says this. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel. But notice verse 20 and teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. That's the law. That's loving God and loving our neighbor. We need all of those things. So a conversation about justice is really as core a conversation about discipleship. It's a conversation about teaching people how to obey all of Christ's commands. Matthew 28, 20. It's not a contradiction of the gospel. It's an outgrowth of the gospel. It's a result of the gospel. We can't separate the gospel from justice any more than we can separate me from my children. It, it is just, it, you can't do it. But we have to do things in a proper order. The gospel changes human hearts. That's the foundation. But the discipleship trains people on how to live according to God's design, how to treat one another. Okay, so we're going to unfold this idea even more in parts two or three of this teaching. So I'm going to put a little bookmark there. But um, if we were to go back to um, the slide with our big definition, we would say, we're again, we're defining justice as rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone is due in accordance with the righteous standard of God's moral law. This definition of biblical justice has traditionally been understood as being the Judeo-Christian worldview, or sometimes it's called the Western worldview. Now, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but the very symbol for justice in our country, and I put it on the thumbnail for this, this live stream, is historically been Lady Justice. Have you ever noticed that she wears a blindfold? It's because she's impartial. The same rules apply to all. She doesn't care if you're rich or poor. And the reason she holds the scales is that she is weighing the evidence in a fair and balanced way. Evidence must be weighed on its own merit. And she carries the sword. Oh, thank you, Bob. There it is. She carries the sword. And that represents the punishment, signifying that justice can be swift and final. 
Lady Justice holds the sword because we know that justice is blind. Evidence will be weighed and according to its merits in a a law court, and then there will be punishment. That's the symbolism of Lady Justice. And all of that, our country's concept of justice flows out of the Judeo-Christian worldview. Our country's concept of justice, however imperfect we have executed it because of our sinfulness, and however we have improved over time and come more and more in conformity with biblical principles, if we have in some ways, any improvements we've made is only because we have gone back to the ultimate truth of God's word and his standard of justice. But our culture is currently in the process of relabeling the Judeo-Christian idea of justice as whiteness. And whiteness, as you probably know, is not a term of endearment. In the minds of our leaders, our academics, our politicians, and many of our neighbors, and even some of our children, whiteness is a culture that has spread wickedness to everything it has touched. This is an infographic that was published by the Smithsonian last summer defining whiteness. And as you can see, I'm just highlighting on the right here, or let's look at the left first, is such things are included as whiteness, as rugged individualism, the scientific method, the Protestant work ethic, and Christianity as a majority religion. Well, one of the aspects of whiteness involves the concept of justice that we have been talking about in this live stream. It's based on what's called English common law. English common law goes back to this idea of looking at the Mosaic law for transcultural principles that reflect God's eternal moral character of justice. That's what English common law is. It's to protect private property. It's to, to look at the commandment of thou shalt not steal. Okay. It's to look at intent that if someone murders with hatred in their heart, that takes a more significant punishment and proportionality than an accidental death. So in circling back to the beginning of this teaching, I said there are two competing visions of justice right now. There's social justice and biblical justice. This right here is where we see this playing out. The Judeo-Christian worldview is now being conflated with whiteness, which is in turn being denounced as wicked, even in some of our churches. So when you see protesters holding up signs that say things like, the time is always right to do what's right, the question you should immediately ask yourself is, what is the standard of rightness? What is the standard of justice that is being used? Is it social justice or biblical justice? We cannot assume that just because the word justice is in the Bible, that it means the same thing as what our culture is inviting us into. All right, we're going to put a bookmark there for now and pick it up next time. In part two, we will dig deeper into God's law and how it uh, shares with us some information about case laws and helps us develop a vision for, for personal righteousness and also justice in our law courts. And in the meantime, I want to encourage you to check out the UP Conference, Uniting People Conference. It's the annual conference from the Center for Biblical Unity and you can find this just by going on the Center for Biblical Unity.com website. And it's coming up on September 9th and through 11th. And it's all about justice this year. The theme is going to be, I'm going to scroll down here a little bit. We can see the theme is standing for biblical justice in a social justice world. So if you're interested in this topic and you really want to know some practicals of how do I stand for justice, go check out the Uniting People's Conference for 2021 through centerforbiblicalunity.com. 
Well, I hope you'll share the show. I hope you found this teaching helpful. And I want to say, may God bless you and good night. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.